With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. In this episode, fan favorite James Kukios, editor of the Morrison and Forster International Anti-Corruption Newsletter, joins us to discuss the developments reported in the January and February newsletter. I know you'll enjoy this episode. This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with fan favorite James Kukios, partner at Morrison & Forster and head editor of the great monthly Morrison & Forster International Anti-Corruption Newsletter. James, first of all, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. I know uh, this is the January newsletter, uh, but we're recording this a little later, and, and our Wolverines did pretty well in the NCAA. They didn't they didn't make it all the way, but they, they did a pretty, pretty good showing there. They did. They did. So uh, it was nice to see us. Finally, back where we belong. Go blue. Go blue. So uh, from your January newsletter, uh, you uh, noted that the Transparency Transparency International Corruption Perception Index, or the TICPI, was released. And I think that's one of the most ubiquitous documents that is known in the compliance profession. But, James, what I really wanted to to maybe use that is uh, to explore using the TICPI as a tool Many compliance practitioners will use it not simply as the Bible, but really as the only source. And it it is a perception of corruption, so it's it's a survey. It is somewhat general. Uh, I think there are other surveys that are more detailed. But I was wondering, now that you are kind of on the other side, how do you see using the TICPI? Is it a tool? Is it the tool? Or is it a suite of tools that you might use? Yeah, Tom, I think it. I would describe it as, as a, one of the tools in a suite of tools that you should use. I think it, it's a definite benchmark that everybody should use. The government itself uses it. You know, when we were at DOJ, for example, we, we looked at it. Um, we asked companies if they had looked at it and if they had not looked at it and they later had an issue in a, in a country that was ranked poorly on the CPI, you know, we would kind of look sideways at them. So I definitely think it's a it's one of the most important tools that a compliance professional should use. Um, as you mentioned, it's a perception index, and it's not infallible by any means. I and mean, there there are certain countries that you know may rank very well one year, but you learn later on that there was a bunch of things that wasn't public that you know could call them, cause them to fall later. And just because they're clean in one area doesn't mean they're clean in the area where you're doing business. So. It's not the um, it's not the only thing a compliance professional should look at, but it's definitely one of the things that should be in the toolbox. So many uh, compliance practitioners, I think, will use it as a basis to make a determinant of the appropriate level of due diligence. So if it's a low-risk country, perhaps level one uh, to level two, higher, medium to higher risk, level two to level three, do you find that an appropriate use of the TICPI? I do as a, as a rough cut. Um, obviously, compliance resources are, are limited and you have to make some some determinations. Um, but that doesn't mean that an individual deal should not get 
more enhanced due diligence as well. Um, so to start with, you know, to say that it, uh, use the CPI as a rough cut to say deals that take place in these countries should get more enhanced due diligence, that doesn't mean it's the only factor that should be uh, um, considered. There should be others as well, you know, the nature of the deal, third parties, uh, which government agency you're dealing with. But I think, you know, as as one factor in determining what your enhanced due diligence uh, program is going to look like, I do think it's a valuable and important factor. What about you, Tom? you think? I think it's it's certainly one tool. Um, actually, I would agree with that. It, it's great for a rough cut. Uh, but if you've got additional red flags that have popped up at this point um, or uh, through other information, you've determined they may be certified by an agency that we're both familiar with. You have some level of comfort that they have a compliance program. Perhaps others in your industry have used them as an agent and you can actually get kind of a, a informal reference. Uh, but as a rough cut, certainly, uh, I think so. Let me ask you to, to maybe go back in time and put your DOJ cap on. When when does a prosecutor, would they test a uh, uh, the risk management program, sort of what I would call the five steps of a business justification, due diligence uh, assessment, and then actually, excuse me, performing the due diligence, then assessing the due diligence and clearing any red flags and putting terms and conditions in a contract. Is that something that a prosecutor would want to see? Absolutely. Um, 100%. And whenever there would be a problem with a third party, which of course is the, you know, the the biggest risk area for anti-corruption, we would ask them, you know, what was your third party due diligence program like? Um, How did you assess this third party? Um, You know, what did you do in terms of due diligence? How did you assess that due diligence? And, you know, what kind of contra- contractual terms and monitoring um, did you do during the engagement of this third party? Um, so absolutely, for sure. And, and that would come out that whether they use the CPI, for example, would come out during that as, as part of the analysis. Was that part of your due diligence assessment? Um, but those are exactly the types of things that we would ask for. It could be a little complicated because sometimes that work is done by lawyers. Um, and so sometimes companies would say, you know, we want to share that information with you, but we can't because it's privileged. And that put us in a little bit of a rough position because we had a company on the one hand saying, trust us, we did a do good job. We did a good job, but we don't want you to see any of the work that we did. And it would be kind of hard to credit that without being able to see the work we did. But we also didn't want to ask anybody to waive privilege if they didn't feel comfortable doing that. So, um, But generally speaking, that's exactly the type of analysis we would want to see in a program. And certainly during compliance presentations, when companies would describe to us their third-party due diligence, we would want to hear those exact things that you named, Tom, um, how they went about uh, doing their third-party – what their third-party due diligence program looked like at least it structure. And just to expand on that, one thing I found very effective when I was in the government also was um, statistics. You know, how many third parties were run through the due diligence program, how many red flags were raised, uh, how many uh, third parties were rejected because of um, the due diligence that was raised, and then what was done in order to block those third parties in the system. Um, When companies would provide that kind of detail to me, uh, when I was on the enforcement side, I found that extremely moving and effective because it showed that there was, uh, it wasn't just a paper program, that there was really something behind that. 
Uh, I'd now like to turn to a case that the U.S. Supreme Court denied cert on, and I'm probably going to butcher the name, but it's uh, Samir Khoury, I think. Um, I think Okay. Well, he had an indictment uh, unsealed uh, a few years ago, and it turned out that that indictment originally came down in 20, excuse me, 2006, was unsealed in 2016. And he was trying to get the indictment thrown out, saying that he didn't, uh, he didn't have his right to a speedy trial. I don't know what your thoughts on that might or might not be, but I did. I was intrigued that uh, an indictment would be sealed for that long. Uh, I was wondering if you could shed some of the light on why that could happen. Sure, sure. Yep, yeah, yeah, exactly right, Tom. Uh, the date's a little bit different. He was actually charged under seal in 2008, if I recall correctly, and it was, but it wasn't sealed 10 years later in 2018. And uh, the charge is related to alleged kickbacks um, from even older than that, from 1996 to 2003, to secure oil contracts in Egypt, Oman, and Qatar, among other countries. Um, you know, usually the reason uh, when when I was at DOJ, usually the reason that we would seal charges would be because uh, we oftentimes it would be that the defendant himself was not in the country, and we wanted that person to continue to travel freely. Um, with the hopes that we would be able to catch him if he traveled to a friendly country or better yet, even the United States. Um, I, I remember we, we did have some defendants along the way that we charged under seal who ended up flying to the United States. Um, and we were very happy that we had charged them under seal because here they were in the United States. Otherwise, they may um, travel through a friendly law enforcement country like, for, for example, Panama or somewhere else where, where I remember some of my other defendants who were charged under seal were also picked up. And so oftentimes it would be a law enforcement reason to file those under seal so that they wouldn't be scared off from traveling and that we could um, eventually um, catch them. I don't know exactly about Mr. Corey, um, what his situation was. He was a dual U.S. and Lebanese citizen. I'm not sure if he was in Lebanon at the time or somewhere outside the United States. Um, and I don't recall, I uh, wasn't there when the decision was made to file him under seal. So I don't know the specifics of his um, situation, but that would be the general situation. Now, it turns out um, if the person never travels or it never comes to fruition, um, then the, those charges may never be unsealed uh, and it could take a long, long time. For some, I don't know the exact details here, but somehow Mr. Corey found out that he had been charged under seal or, or at least DO, or, or perhaps DOJ unsealed those count, um, charges because they were getting so old. And he moved um, in the district court, then appealed to the fifth circuit and then tried to go to the U S Supreme court to say, you know, these charges are really too old. The witnesses have died um, or their memories have faded, or I can't some for other, whatever reason, can't get them to defend myself if I were arrested on these charges. So you should dismiss these as a matter of due process Thus far, that argument has been unsuccessful, um, but it's an interesting argument um, and, and something that could certainly happen in these situations where, where a charging document has been under seal for so long. Next, I'd like to turn to a guilty plea of Daniel Camaretto that came out of the Sergeant Marine case. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So Camaretto was a former manager and trader for Venezuela's National Oil Company, which we've talked about probably many times on this uh, podcast, uh, PDVSA. Um, and back in September of 2020, DOJ uh, uh, announced that it had reached uh, a resolution with Sergeant Marine. 
And at that time, it also announced that it had reached a number of resolutions with individuals and that it had charged Mr. Camarado under seal and was unsealing those charges as well. And I think if you go back to um, a long time ago when the criticism used to be that DOJ would only charge companies and would never charge individuals, um, that September 2020 announcement really was one of those examples where DOJ, DOJ was trying to say, that's not true. We charge both companies and individuals. And in fact, we're going to announce a whole bunch of individuals at the same time that we announced the corporate resolution. Now, it turned out um, several of the individuals that they announced back in September had been cooperating with the government and had pled guilty under seal. Um, and that they had also charged Mr. Camaretto under seal. Likely what that meant was because they were going public, um, Camaretto was going to know that he was probably in the crosshairs. And so they went ahead and unsealed the charges against him as well. Uh, and then it took a couple months and he finally did plead guilty in January of 2021. It's also interesting, you know, I think to, to point out, we, I think we've talked about this before, Tom, Camaretto himself is alleged to be an official um, of, uh, of the foreign government. And so it's interesting also, you know, um, uh, DOJ continues to bring charges not only against bribe payers, but alleged bribe receivers as well using the money laundering statutes. And once again, as I recall, Camaretto had actually moved to the United States, and he's one of a number of ex-Pedavesa employees. And all I can conclude, if it's so bad you're going to fly to the country that can get jurisdiction over you, uh, to live, it must be very bad in Venezuela. That's true. He, yeah, that's true. He was lawful permanent resident of the United States, as well as a dual citizen of Venezuela and Italy. Maybe he should have gone to Italy, Tom, to your point. I'd like to now turn, James, to the uh, February newsletter. And we had a, a couple of different uh, stories regarding the serious fraud officer, the SFO. Uh, one, perhaps not so good, and one, perhaps a little bit better. And the uh, KBR decision uh, regarding document production and then the Paul Paul Bond uh, was convicted on retrial. Retrial. I was wondering uh, what you saw in the. Uh, were, were you surprised by the uh, KBR decision, or did you find it really followed at least your understanding of English law? I have very little understanding of English law, Tom. I, I, I defer <laughs> to my uh, UK partners for for the nuances there. Um, but it was still a very interesting development that um, you know even this American can uh, find significant. Uh, if I could summarize it briefly, in February of 2021, the UK Supreme Court held um, essentially limited the ability of the UK Serious Fraud Office to compel production of foreign evidence. In that case, uh, the SFO was trying to get um, documents from KBR in the United States, and uh, the SFO read um, a particular statute under English law as allowing for that. Um, it's not unlike, in my mind, if you if you look at Bank of Nova Scotia subpoenas in the United States, where DOJ takes the position, the courts have agreed that DOJ can get um, documents from foreign banks if they have an outpost in the United States. Um, so it's a little, it sounded a little bit like a Bank of Nova Scotia subpoena of of some sort. Um, you know, KBR had UK um, offices. But they were actually seeking the SFO is actually seeking evidence from the U.S. entity outside of the, the U.K. And basically, the the Supreme Court of the U.K. said, "No, you can't do that. The statute doesn't go that far." 
and you can't compel a non-UK um, uh, company to produce documents from outside the, the UK. Um, it's obviously a setback to the SFO. It's going to make foreign evidence gathering much more cumbersome. And of course, in foreign bribery cases, it's going to make those uh, investigations more difficult. However, it does not mean that the SFO is without any kind of redress. Um, our estimation is that the SFO will likely continue to compel UK companies to produce documents that are held overseas. Um, and that when the documents are from a non-UK company overseas, that the SFO will use the mutual legal assistance treaty process, um, which is what the DOJ prosecutors are supposed to do also, despite the presence of Bank of Nova Scotia um, uh, subpoenas anyway. So, you know, this is clearly going to make it more difficult for the SFO to do foreign investigations, but not impossible. It'll just take some more time to do that. Regarding the Paul Bond trial, you know, this is an interesting one. Um, uh, Mr. Bond, had this is actually his second trial. Um, this relates to the Una Oil investigation. He and two co-defendants uh, co were actually um, tried uh, back in 2020, and a jury convicted the two co-defendants of related crimes, but they, they couldn't reach a verdict as Mr. Bond. Uh, so the SFO uh, went back at it. They tried Mr. Bond again, and this time they got a conviction um, related to Mr. Bond's alleged involvement in a scheme to bribe officials at the Iraqi South Oil Company in order to secure lucrative oil contracts in the late 2000s. You know, the SFO sometimes gets, a hard, um, gets some hard knocks for some trial losses they've had uh, in foreign bribery and other cases, but I kind of see it differently. I mean, first of all, they're not afraid to try cases. They, they often do try foreign bribery cases. And, you know, just because they lose a couple doesn't mean they're not good at it. And I think the Bond case shows that, you know, if at first they don't succeed, they can try, try again and win again. And that's the, in this one case, uh, three jury verdicts of guilty. So I think the SFO gets kind of a bad rap for not being very good at trials. I think they're actually pretty successful in what they do. And this is another example. A long, long time ago, a senior partner I worked for said, if you never go to trial, you never have a loss. That's right. So uh, I learned uh, pretty early on that uh, get your tail down to the courthouse when, when it, you can't get it resolved. So, um, you know, we had the same reputation at DOJ for a while. Um, in the FCPA unit, we, we had a couple bad rulings in the alternate breach case. But then, you know, I went down and tried Eskenazi and we won that. And, you know, they've been on a pretty good streak ever since. So just because you lose some cases doesn't mean that you're not, you know, you're, you can't bring them and you can't win them. In fact, I think the SFO and DOJ have pretty good records despite a few losses. I would agree. Uh, we had a Samsung Industries resolution of a corruption matter with the Brazilian authorities, and it was through a leniency agreement. And I was wondering if you could uh, maybe tell us or talk to us a little bit about what a, a leniency agreement is in uh, Brazil. Is it the equivalent to a DPA or an MPA, or is it really a, a Brazilian-flavored document? It's a little bit of both. Um, so they don't have corporate criminal liability in Brazil. Um, and so they don't do deferred prosecution agreements, but a leniency agreement is is probably uh, I'm sure there's many nuances that uh, my Brazilian colleagues will will say this is oversimplified, uh, but it is very similar to a deferred prosecution agreement or a settlement agreement here in the United States with a U.S. enforcement authority. Essentially, the company agrees to resolve a, an investigation with Brazilian authorities, 
And as a result of that, there is some kind of benefit given to the company, whether it be a um, you know, reduced penalty or some other kind of benefit in that regard. Um, and that was one of the things that uh, Brazil has recently introduced, um, and they've used them in a number of Operation Car Wash related cases, including this one. Uh, we also had an extradition from Spain to Mexico, uh, I think of a former PMEX official, and a little bit unusual, I think, to, to see Mexico ask for anyone to be uh, extradited, perhaps even Spain. I was wondering, is there really any, in, was there significance to this action in your mind? There's two, two aspects that are significant uh, in my mind. Number one is this investigation itself um, has the potential of being very, very large in Mexico. Um, we've covered this before, I think, Tom, in a couple um, prior podcasts, and we regularly report on this in our top 10. Uh, but currently, there's a, a major investigation going on in Mexico regarding alleged corruption at uh, the Mexico's national oil con- company, Pemex. Um, there was a while ago their former president of Pemex was arrested in Spain, extradited, and he has um, alleged that several former Mexican presidents were involved in the corruption at Pemex as well. So that's obviously big news. This fellow who was just um, uh, extradited from Spain in February of 2021 back to Mexico is alleged to have been one of the people who paid a bribe to the former president of Pemex in connection with the sale of a, um, a company to Pemex back in 2012 when he was president. I'm sorry, 2014, it was a fertilizer plant that Pemex had, had bought from the former, well, the former CEO of Pemex was, was overseeing that. So uh, I think it's significant, number one, because it's a big um, investigation in Mexico. This shows that it continues to have legs, and this fellow could cooperate against you know, others at, um, in the government of Mexico and, and whatnot. The second reason I think it's uh, significant is it continues to show international cooperation in foreign bribery cases. Uh, we've had a number of alleged bribe payers and bribe takers from Spanish-speaking countries uh, arrested in Spain and extradited to their home countries for um, prosecution. So not only is this a big deal for Mexico domestically, but it shows the international cooperation in foreign bribery matters. James, I wanted to end with um, the uh, at least the winding down of Operation Car Wash and the prosecutions, although as we've seen with Samsung, there may be uh, a longer tail on this. And really wanted to take the time to uh, take the opportunity to ask you if you could assess its overall impact in the uh, fight against bribery and corruption. Obviously, we had significant enforcement actions. But uh, to my mind, we saw a level of cooperation, uh, possibly not seen before, but certainly a very high level between U.S. and Brazilian prosecutors. We saw the real first international sharing of fines and penalties. We saw a truly international scope of investigations and, and uh, uh, companies involved all the way to Singapore and to Brazil and back. And just really get your thoughts on what does car wash mean for the international fight against bribery and corruption? Well, I agree with everything you said, Tom. I, I actually don't know how much uh, more there's left to say because whatever what you said uh, was was spot on. I mean, this was probably, and I don't think this is going out on a limb, the biggest foreign bribery case of all time. 
Uh, as you mentioned, there were enforcement authorities from all over the world involved. They cooperated um, in every aspect from, from building cases to sharing defendants to sharing the proceeds of resolution actions. And I think it really brought um, Brazil in particular uh, into the fold of major anti-corruption enforcement countries that really cooperate on an international scale. I still remember I was at the FCPA conference at the um, National Harbor in Washington, D.C., when the first Lava Jato or car wash um, uh, charges were handed down. I was actually at lunch uh, with a bunch of Brazilian lawyers, and all of them got very quiet and were looking at their phones. And I asked them, you know, what was happening? And they said that there had just been a, um, major enforcement actions against, announced against uh, very significant uh, industrialists in Brazil that, and major companies that they thought up to then was impossible. I mean, they, they, they really saw this as the end of impunity in Brazil. And it was it really stuck with me because the, I, I could see the reaction physically for these Brazilian lawyers to what they were seeing happening in Brazil. And so for Brazil itself, it was a major movement. And then for all the reasons you discussed, Tom, that cascaded throughout the world and really became a huge um, moment for anti-corruption as well. You know, unfortunately, it's ending on, a, on something of a, a sour note. Um, it it kind of ran out of steam at the end, kind of ran out of political support, and some of the um, convictions uh, uh, are starting to be reversed a little bit. And so one question going forward with, is – how much of a lasting impact this will have in Brazil. I think it will continue to have some. You can't reverse all of it. And the, you know, maybe most importantly, the citizens of Brazil were behind it. And so there's going to be an appetite for this in the future. Um, but we'll have to wait and see uh, you know, how long lasting and how deep the impact is. But over the last uh, seven years, it, there hasn't been another anti-corruption investigation that's had anywhere near the type of impact the car wash has had. So I'd say it was massive impact in a monumental case. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, James. Uh, I know the March uh, newsletter's out, but we're going to save that uh, for another episode, perhaps pair it with its sister April. And it looks like you're having a beautiful spring in Washington. So uh, hopefully things will be getting back to normal-ish. Let's hope so. Okay, thanks a lot, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for having me, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. We have a great new show on the Compliance Podcast Network called Mo Forecast, which is a podcast of the law firm of Morrison and Forrester, hosted by James Kukios. Check that out on the Compliance Podcast Network. Also, we have a new podcast, Survive and Thrive, where with my co-host, Courtney Nordrum, we take a look at compliance disasters, some of the lessons learned and red flags missed, plus what you can do to avoid them going forward. I know you'll enjoy this great new series, Survive and Thrive, which posts every other Tuesday on the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.